I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Congratulations, true crime addicts. We've survived another week. It is Friday, October 13th. Friday the 13th, 2023. Um, And strange thing, this week I checked, there was absolutely no crime. So instead, I'm going to bring you a sneak peek at the next episode of The Philosophy of Crime. That's right, my other podcast, The Philosophy of Crime, season six premiered last week, and the first two shows are already out. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. But I'm going to give a sneak peek today for my True Crime This Week listeners. This is episode three, which doesn't come out for other people until Tuesday. It is Psychopaths and the Bicameral Mind. Enjoy. I'll see you next week. The murders began in 1976. It was about 1 a.m. on July 29th. 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valenti had just left the Peachtree Discotheque in New Rochelle. Donna and Judy were old friends, and both young women were studying to work in the medical field. Jody wanted to be a nurse. Donna was taking EMT classes. Jody drove Donna home to Pelham Bay, where she lived in an apartment with her mom and dad. Jody double-parked outside the apartment, and they sat in the car for a bit, talking. Donna's parents returned from a night out about that time and told Donna to come inside soon. The women were finishing up their conversation when Jody noticed a pudgy man in a striped shirt walking toward her car. Do you know this guy? Donna asked. But Jody didn't recognize him, and... Before she could answer, the man pulled a gun. He crouched down and braced one elbow on his knee and then fired four shots through the passenger window. Donna was killed instantly. Jody got hit in the thigh. And then the man ran away into the night. Jody would later tell police that the killer was a white man, about five feet, eight inches tall, and about 200 pounds. His hair was short, dark, and curly. The attack appeared to be completely random. Three months later, 20-year-old Carl De Niro and 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan were sitting in a parked car in Flushing when the windows exploded. At first, they didn't know what had happened. Rosemary quickly started the car and sped away. As they escaped, De Niro realized he'd been shot in the head. He survived but underwent surgery so that doctors could replace part of his skull with a metal plate. They never saw their attacker, but police determined the shooter had used a 44 caliber handgun. 
Then, in November, two high school girls, Donna DeMasi and Joanne Lomino, were attacked in Floral Park while walking home from a movie shortly after midnight. A man in military fatigues approached and asked for directions. But before either could answer, he pulled a gun and shot each girl one time before fleeing the scene. Damasi was shot in the neck and survived. Lamina was hit in the back. She survived too, as a paraplegic. Another attack occurred in the early morning hours of January 30, 1977. 26-year-old Christine Freund and her fiancé, John Deal, were parked in a car in Queens when three gunshots rang out. Deal was able to drive away, but Freund had been shot twice. She died at the hospital. Like the other victims, the shooter had used a 44 caliber. More murders followed that march, sending New York City and the surrounding boroughs into a panic. A serial killer was on the loose, and he called himself Son of Sam. The killer left a handwritten letter at one of his crime scenes to taunt the police. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater, he wrote. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. I am the monster Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. It was a parking ticket and a series of fortuitous connections that finally caught Son of Sam. A woman named Cecilia Davis took her dog for a walk one evening in August that summer, passing the crime scene of one of the murders. She noticed Officer Michael Cataneo ticketing a car that was parked too close to a fire hydrant. Moments after the officer walked away, Davis spotted a young man standing nearby watching her. He had a dark object in his hand. It scared her so much she ran for her house. She heard gunshots behind her, but she was not hit. She contacted the police a few days later. They checked every ticket that was given that night and found one written to David Berkowitz. NYPD Detective James Justice called the Yonkers Police Department and asked them to bring Berkowitz in for an interview. The dispatcher who took that call actually knew Berkowitz from the neighborhood. He lives right behind me, she told the detective. She told him that Berkowitz had shot and wounded their dog. Actually, it was her father's dog, her father, Sam. The next day, police arrived outside Berkowitz's apartment where they found his car parked outside. There was a gun in the back seat that gave them probable cause to search inside where they found a duffel bag filled with ammunition and maps of the crime scenes, as well as a new letter addressed to the head of the Son of Sam task force. They waited until Berkowitz came outside. When he got into his car, Detective John Falatico walked over and pointed his gun at Berkowitz's head. Well, you got me, said Berkowitz. Now that I've got you, who have I got? The detective asked. You know. No, I don't. You tell me. I'm Sam, said Berkowitz. After his arrest, detectives searched Berkowitz's apartment. There they found satanic graffiti on the walls and a diary that described hundreds of arsons that he claimed to have set throughout New York City. 
Once in custody, Berkowitz confessed, but it was an odd confession. He claimed that his neighbor's dog had been instructing him to kill people. The dog's name was Harvey. Berkowitz believed that Harvey was possessed by an ancient demon that wanted the blood of pretty young girls. The court didn't buy it, and in 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder to be served consecutively. He remains in prison to this day. Every two years, a parole hearing is held, and every time Berkowitz refuses to ask for his release. Sometimes he doesn't even bother to show up. He believes he deserves to remain behind bars for the rest of his life. Berkowitz is not the only serial killer who claims to have taken instructions by a demonic or godlike voice. I think it's possible that these men really did hear a voice commanding them to kill, but not from any demon or god. I believe the voice was a part of themselves that they didn't recognize, a holdover from a not-so-distant past when humans were not yet fully conscious. Today, we explore the theory of the bicameral mind and how it might sometimes create serial killers like David Berkowitz. This is the Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. What is consciousness? That's one of those existential questions that will keep you up at night if you think about it too hard. I think, therefore, I am, said Descartes. But what does that really mean? Some define consciousness as simply being awake, of being aware. But others believe consciousness is something more, not just an awareness of our surroundings, but a self-awareness, an awareness of our own thoughts and desires, and the ability to control our internal demands and urges. Animals have awareness of the world, but they seem to run mostly on instinct, and very few seem to have a sense of self. There's something decidedly different happening inside the human mind. The search for that special something is what Princeton researcher Julian Jaynes devoted his life to. Jaynes was born in 1920 in West Newton, Massachusetts, the son of a Unitarian minister who died when he was two. His father left behind 48 volumes of sermons, which Jaynes read as a child. From a very young age, he was intrigued by the paradoxes of consciousness. When he was six, he would look at a yellow forsythia flower and wonder if the yellow he was seeing was the same yellow anyone else might perceive. How could we ever know for sure? When World War II came along, Jaynes refused to fight. As a conscientious objector, he was sent to work at a camp to support the war effort from home, but he knew his work still contributed to a cause he detested. So he wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General stating that he was leaving the camp. Can we work within the logic of an evil system for its destruction? He wrote, Jesus did not think so, nor do I. For his act of rebellion, Jaynes was sent to prison for three years where he found work at the prison hospital. While walking the yard, he would spy a little worm in the earth and wonder what separated it from the dirt and what separated the worm from himself. After the war, Jaynes was freed. He enrolled as a student at Yale University, studying the differences between animal consciousness and human consciousness, a subject known as 
comparative psychology. He got his master's in 1948 and then his doctorate, but refused the degree because he didn't believe in academic credentials. What a baller, right? In 1964, Jaynes became a research associate at Princeton University, where he remained for the rest of his life. It was there that he had his breakthrough. In 1969, Jaynes began to give lectures on a new theory of consciousness, which he later put down in his only book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Jaynes believed that consciousness arose alongside the invention of language, that true consciousness could not exist without language. He wrote, If consciousness is based on language, then it follows that only humans are conscious, and that we became so at some historical epoch after language was evolved. To prove his theory, he looked at early stories to search for how and when true consciousness evolved in the human mind. He found what he was looking for in one of the oldest surviving stories, the Iliad, a poem about the Trojan War, which is believed to have been written in the 8th century BC. The characters in the Iliad show no self-reflection, as in later works of literature. There is no internal monologue. Instead, the characters in the Iliad take orders from various gods. They are told what to do and how to act by external voices, or voices they believe are external. Jaynes went so far as to declare that there is no consciousness in the Iliad at all. In fact, introspection doesn't really show up in literature until around the 2nd century BC, only about 4,000 years ago. So what's going on? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've known for a long time that our brains are divided into two hemispheres, a left brain and a right brain, which communicate with each other so that we can walk and talk and interact with the world. The right hemisphere, for example, controls our left hand, while our left hemisphere controls the movements of our right hand, and they must work together to help us eat a roast beef sandwich. Each side of our brain is its own chamber of functionality. The Latin word for chamber is camera, hence the bicameral mind. There was a time not so long ago when humans lived in small groups of 20 or 30 people, small tribes of hunters and gatherers who survived on instinct alone, driven by the need to eat and to reproduce. And then along came language. Some believe primitive man ate some magic mushrooms that open up their minds to the possibility of language, but that's a story for another day. Suffice to say, language, and more importantly, the use of metaphor, changed everything. Suddenly, we had the ability to communicate complex ideas and abstract thoughts with each other. This allowed us to organize into bigger groups and to work together to build larger communities. We learned to pass down our experiences in stories and written text so that each generation could build upon the last. From community came culture. But still, we were not fully conscious, according to Jane's. Not yet, anyway. Jane's believed that at this point in history, the two hemispheres of our brain were less integrated than they are today. One side was working as an executive, suggesting behavior and action to the other side, which did as it was told. And after the invention of language, that executive part can now issue orders not through instinct, but through language itself. And those executive orders were interpreted as audible hallucinations. We heard someone inside our head giving us orders, and we believed this was the voice of God. And so we invented religion. And then at some points around 4,000 years ago, our brains evolved so that these audible hallucinations were replaced with an internal monologue and a self-awareness that these commands and the will to act were our own thoughts. We became aware that we were thinking. At that point, we began to see self-reflection in literature. There is some decent evidence to support this theory. Occasionally, people suffer accidents which damage the connection between the hemispheres of their brains, a collection of neurons known as the corpus callosum. A neuropsychologist named Roger Sperry conducted a series of experiments with people whose corpus callosum had been severed. For one such experiment, Sperry showed his participants a word on a screen while having a patch over the person's eye. Remember, the right eye is controlled by the left hemisphere and the left eye by the right hemisphere. So Sperry covered a person's left eye and showed them a word and then did it again with the other eye. What he found was weird. When the participants saw the word with their right eye, they were able to say the word back to him. But when the participants viewed the word with their left eye, they could not remember what word they were looking at. The hemisphere that recognized the word could not communicate with the part that could speak to Sperry. 
Sperry concluded that the left hemisphere could recognize and articulate language while the right one could not. We are literally of two minds. So we've recently evolved a way for the two chambers of our brains to communicate through self-aware, language-based thinking, and we no longer interpret these messages as auditory hallucinations. However, like every other genetic trait, sometimes recessive structures re-emerge. After all, some people today are still born with little vestigial tails or extra nipples, holdovers from an ancient genetic soup. Likewise, genes believed we still see traces of these less integrated bicameral minds in some people, specifically in the brains of schizophrenics, who hear loud voices in their heads, which they sometimes interpret as the voice of God, or a demon, or a family member. And sometimes those voices tell them to kill. Recent studies show that 10% of all homicides in the United States are committed by people who suffer from schizophrenia. When it comes to mass killing, spree murders, and serial killings, it's closer to 33%, a third of all cases. Jared Lee Lautner, the man who killed six people and wounded U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords, and John Holmes, the man who shot up a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, were both schizophrenic. A serial killer named Herbert Mullen killed several people in California in the 70s because a voice in his head told him there would be a great earthquake if he didn't. Doesn't that sound like something from the Bible? Here in Cleveland, Anthony Sowell heard the voice of a ghost talking to him. And let's not forget Joe D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, who believed he had a demon inside him urging him to kill. It seems likely that some of those killers may possess a more primitive mind, one where the hemispheres are still communicating by audible hallucinations. But traumatic brain injury may also be a factor for some. There are several papers to be found on the link between schizophrenia and TBI online through the National Institutes of Health and publications like the Journal of Neurology. Evidence suggests that people who suffered a traumatic brain injury were 60% more likely to develop schizophrenia. In fact, this may be what created a mind like David Berkowitz. When he was seven years old, Berkowitz suffered serious head injuries after being struck by a car. A few months after that, he ran into a wall and again injured his head. When he was eight, he was struck on the head by a pipe. It's quite possible that Berkowitz damaged his corpus callosum in those accidents because by age 11, he was hearing monsters whispering to him in his room at night. And he begins setting arson fires when he's 12. Personally, I'm a believer in the theory of the bicameral mind. It provides a handy explanation for the very worst serial killers in modern history. Otherwise, what is it that drives these people to act the way they do? Better to think it can all be blamed on physiology. It also provides hope for early intervention. If Berkowitz had been diagnosed with a damaged corpus callosum when he was eight, maybe there's something we could have done to help him before he started hearing his neighbor's dog commanding him to kill, or at least he could have been properly monitored. However, the idea also frightens me because it suggests the possibility that at least some of the people we encounter in this world are not fully conscious, but merely automatons running on instinct, capable of immeasurable violence if provoked. 
So the next time someone cuts you off in traffic, maybe it's best not to retaliate. You never know what they're thinking, or if they're thinking at all. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my new weekly podcast, True Crime This Week. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations at woodif.com. Until next time, remember that there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when somebody needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better.